Right. Um, so I was hoping to perhaps start with a little bit about yourself um, before we sort of go on to tiny builds. So maybe you could give us a bit of a a background to your to mm -hmm. how you got started, your early career. I know you started out as a, a pro gamer at 14. That's sort of a, a, <laughs> a pretty uh, impactful yeah. start. And then sort of went on perhaps to some other vocations in the game industry journalism and game producing and so on so maybe you could just give us a rundown of all mm -hmm. that yeah i mean it's it's crazy to think that it's been over 15 no over 20 years god that i started and uh, professional gaming is uh really the first colonial job i had because i was really good at playing games so i decided to start competing in tournaments and uh, started making money so that counts uh, but then i started to uh I get onto the international arena. Uh, I was pretty good at Counter-Strike and Warcraft 3 in the Baltic states. I'm from a little country called Latvia. And then when we got to uh, the more European leagues, everyone realized, okay, just not as good as we should be. So I kind of abandoned that. Um, but what that gave me is um, an opportunity to talk to a lot of different people and organizations and kind of like started to get a grasp of uh, closer to game development. So that's when I uh, decided to start writing about games, just in my own free time, just writing uh, uh, game reviews, opinion pieces, and people started to read them. And then I started to get uh, job uh, offers for projects and then went uh, into full-time journalism up until I was about 19 years old. I was a game journalist. Um, and this is alongside kind of abandoning high school uh, in a weird way. Uh, because uh, that's right around the time of the financial collapse of 06, 07, 09, depending on where you were. And uh, just decided to start making money helping uh, my family. And uh, eventually that kind of like that cumulative experience of playing a lot of games, of writing about them, of trying to figure out how the industry works, uh, landed me a job as a game producer. And uh, game production is usually kind of like glamorized in a way in many uh, aspects because um, the perception at that point that the game producer is kind of like the rock star, you know, like mm. uh, the movie producer, like uh, it's an incredibly fun job, but actually it's a really interestingly glorified project management with a lot of soft skill requirements. So it's essentially a job of making sure that your team is able to deliver and um, motivating them being um, the HR being the uh, guy that brings everyone tea, uh, being the person that makes sure that everyone's doing okay. And being so young at that point, uh, working with teams of you know, 10, 20 people, everyone a lot older than me, that was definitely an interesting experience. Um, and I um, I got really involved in the product life. Like I, I got actually, uh, I was fortunate to be producing some games for the original Xbox Live Arcade like way back when the uh, Xbox 360 was launching. Wow. So um, did that for a while. Um, and um, at one point, I just started doing, you know, a smaller projects here and there. Like uh, at one point, I made a games website where um, a lot of Counter-Strike teams uh, would come to every night and pay a little bit of an entry fee and then compete in a tournament. And then, you know, we would uh, take a commission of that and uh, scale that into... A business that was generating very meaningful revenues. Uh, a lot of projects like that uh, taught me about uh, online marketing, right? Of how to uh, make sure that your product gets exposure. And uh, thing was that was kind of done out of necessity in a way because in the region where I'm from, Eastern Europe, the Baltic States, Latvia, there was no game development per se. 
right? Uh, there was no industry. So I was kind of uh, trying to find a way for myself to get into actual game development. And it's kind of like a series of fortunate and unfortunate events that uh, got me into actual game development, where I started off um, as a producer on web games, uh, having moved to the Netherlands, uh, just outside of Amsterdam, where I still reside, uh, in 2011. Um, and I was working with a lot of talented developers of Flash games. Uh, you know, those little web games that were yeah, dominating yeah, the yeah. early 2010s? Yeah. And a lot of those developers also wanted to transition to more like real games, games that people would want to pay money for, games that you could port to a console, right? And it just so happened that uh, that is when I found um, one game developer on Newgrounds.com. It was used to be this like creative community. Uh, his name was Tom Bryan, and he made this little flash game called No Time to Explain. He made it in a weekend as a joke. The joke landed. The joke was very funny. Uh, it's a time paradox platformer where you uh, try to save yourself from the future. And I approach him and go like, "Hey, let's uh, let's make this into a full game." He goes like, "You're crazy. Let's do it." So we did a Kickstarter uh, back in uh, 2011, which was a new thing. Uh, crowdfunding was not that well developed. Uh, we raised $26,000 and used that to fund the commercial, like the real release of No Time to Explain. And the thing about that is um, it took two years, right, from uh, starting it to fully launching it on Steam in 2013. Um, and that was, you know, while you both have like other full-time jobs, you're funding it in uh, any way you can, uh, emotional roller coaster, everything. So we launch it overnight success, right? Every indie developer's dream. You have a uh, game that then justifies you quitting your jobs and going uh, full time and making a game number two. And that aspect kind of terrified me. Uh, the idea of uh, that uh, locking yourself in for another couple of years, um, trying to do either a sequel or something else and then hoping that the market conditions align again, right? Because that lag is where a lot of studios um, mm. fail to like succeed under game number two. You hear a lot of success stories, but uh, I also see a lot of stories where it doesn't work. So instead, we decided to kind of reinvest all the money we had made from No Time to Explain into co-developing another game and being the publisher for it. And that model um, was so much more fulfilling because we kind of had this you know, portfolio approach instead of just concentrating on a single title, where we then signed another few games that we could also publish. Uh, and then um, very quickly, we kind of became this, um, I guess, developer-publisher hybrid, where uh, you can tell by my accent, right? I speak other languages. Uh, I speak Russian and Latvian. And we were able to establish ourselves within that region of those developers kind of going from web to proper PC and console. Okay, that's a really long intro. I'll pause here for for questions. No, that's great. That's yeah, that's mm -hmm. actually covered quite a lot. So, um, uh -huh. so how? So that that's a really good covering of your sort of pre. So was that? Am I right in saying that sort of pre tiny build, or when you said no, so, you, st mm -hmm. you started producing that first game, was that sort of the inception of tiny build? Yeah, the inception of tiny build really happened was the Kickstarter for No Time to Explain. That is when we came okay. up with the name. We were like uh, the studio tiny build, right? Uh, 2011, uh, we weren't incorporated yet at that point, but we're just doing business as tiny build. But then when we published the first game, uh, the first like co-developed game that we didn't do ourselves, that was also in 2013, that was called Speedrunners. And that's when tiny build essentially was born as a publishing brand. Got you, got you. 
um, years ago now. Yeah, amazing, isn't it? And then, um, yeah. and, and so what did sort of the company's growth look like after that, from that point onwards up until, because obviously in, in 2021 you had the IPO, mm -hmm. but what sort of, how had the company progressed and how did perhaps your role within it change um, as it grew over that, mm -hmm. that period? Yes, yeah, so I was uh, very hands-on on many, many projects. Uh, we've published 80 so far, so I'd say that I was hands-on involved in at least 30 of them. And uh, we were a small company for quite a bit, working on several games at the time. And uh, we uh, got into what many call today indie publishing. I, I'm using air quotes right now for indie publishing, uh, but really what that means to me is third-party publishing, right? Where mm. I'm the publisher, I have some funds, some marketing expertise, some knowledge, and then I go out and fund a few game development studios. We get a transactional contract where we um, agree to publish their game. We will market it and we'll make it successful. And that is a great model until the floodgates on all of the platforms open. So when we started, you couldn't just get onto Steam. You couldn't just get onto Xbox, PlayStation. Uh, you had to uh, be very, very well trusted by those platforms, have enough connections, and you were kind of um, the gatekeeper for the platforms as a publisher. So um, it's great until it all is opened up and then the business model became, I call it the Groupon model, where um, it's a business that's very easy to replicate. You remember those Groupon clones popping up like five years yeah. ago, uh, like everyone and their mom had one. So this started to happen with indie publishing, which means that um, you know we fund a game, uh, we release it, it's successful, we we make a lot of money, it's great. The developer makes a lot of money, it's great. But what also happens is that usually at this point, you have funded a new intellectual property that is successful, that then can be taken to the next level. Because when you have something that's already successful, it's much easier to scale it than you know finding the success. And in this transactional relationship, the incentive between the developer and publisher are misaligned. Because most of the time, the developer will be super happy with the amount of money they made, and they are uh, often, you know, the financial incentive have over exceeded their expectations. So there's no motivation to continue working on it and expanding on it. And it may also feel a little bit like the imposter syndrome, you know, like you've achieved more than you've set out mm -hmm. for. So that's understandable. But we also knew that this was not where we want to go. So we started to invest into IP. We started to invest into franchise because that is where the long-term value is. And in 2017, we released our first wholly owned intellectual property called Hello Neighbor, which was a runaway hit. Uh, it's, it ga gathered millions and millions of views on YouTube. The sales were phenomenal. And that kind of proved to us that investing into an asset we own is really vital. But what it also allowed us to do, this is something that not many people realize about the Neighbor franchise, is when in 2017 the first game was releasing, we had already started working on game number two and game number three. Because oh, remember right. I mentioned the, that game lag uh, two years to develop? Hmm. That's the um, challenge of the um, industry is people forget about your game unless you have a lot of things happening in quick succession. It's so risky to have a sequel release a few years later without any other products in between. So... 2017, the original Hollow Neighbor launches. 2018, a prequel launches. 2019, uh, the multiplayer spin-off Secret Neighbor launches. Three games in a row. In between, we launched a comic book series that sold a million copies. We uh, launched uh, a, a series of board games that sold hundreds of thousands. 
we launched a book series that uh, with Scholastic has sold over 4 million copies, right? Then we release a mobile version for free that gets over 100 million downloads. And that's kind of like, you know, how you build a franchise. That was making a lot of money and we were reinvesting that back into new IP and scaling existing franchise. And that's kind of uh, the transformational years for Tiny Build, which started about five, six years ago. We went from being um, this transactional indie publisher. Uh, and again, there is nothing wrong with that model. It's just that I, what I want to do is I want to build a company that builds franchises that uh, have a mix of existing IP that you expand and investing to new IP. And that meant that we had to, in, uh, well, buy intellectual property, create our own intellectual property, and also uh, integrate studios internally. So right now, our headcount is mostly game development studios. We have 14 spread across the globe. And they're, most of them are now working on their second installment in uh, the franchise that they're working on. So what was it? Um, so it sounds like fairly early on, even at the point of you sort of re uh re-releasing the first game um after you acquired um the ip it sounds pre like pretty early on you sort of realized that uh hello neighbor was a good candidate mm -hmm. for a franchise so what what sort of made it stand out in that respect yes yeah, so we realized that um hello neighbor has a lot of engagement with uh, a slightly different target audience because uh, right now, the sentiment in the investment community, at least, or in the um, in uh, with analysts who analyze PC game publishers, is that it's all about Steam, and that is understandable. Steam is the biggest distribution platform, and it's the easiest to get data from. What we realized with Hello Neighbor is that there are many more gamers out there that don't even know what Steam is, primarily on console, um, but it's also um, a different audience that doesn't need to be told if the game is good. What they need to do uh, is have um, the. Uh, let me let me think the English word. They need to feel like they're involved in development, right? So right. they actually want to feel part of the development process because for them it's more interesting than the final result. So what we did with the development of the original Hello Neighbor is we made it a community effort. We made it kind of like this puzzle, this mystery box where during development, we would release builds that would um, promote interest and into what the game's story is, what is the puzzle that people are uh, trying to solve. And um, it's if you search for things like uh, Hello Neighbor Story Explained or Hello Neighbor AI Story Explained, you'll get, and uh, do you want me to spoil it? Because it's been kind of five years <laughs> since the game released. Go ahead, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, the game is actually two layers, right? Uh, one is that it's a creepy neighbor that is uh, living across the street that probably has someone kidnapped in their basement. So naturally, you want to sneak in and you play against an advanced self-learning AI that reacts to your every move, right? So that's what people perceive the game is. And that's what most uh, journalists perceive the game was. What fans realize that that is not the game. The game is playing in development builds being part of this community and discovering really odd things about a self-learning AI that eventually becomes sentient as you play the game. So the true game game is a couple of layers deeper. It's kind of like the TV show Westworld. Uh, if you watch it season one, uh, you will know what I mean, where mm -hmm. it's about finding consciousness and realizing that you as a player are actually torturing this AI. And what he wants to do is to be set free. 
So that's um, once we had that plan in place and started to test it, right? Uh, the community reaction was phenomenal, and we knew before the game's launch that this was going to be big, and that we wanted to scale it and use that as kind of like you know the blueprint framework for our other franchises. Very interesting. Yeah. So uh, on the subject of future franchises, a couple that were mentioned, um, perhaps in your report or some publications were. Uh, sort of streets of rogue and mm-hmm. totally reliable delivery service so how mm-hmm. and I, I know you've got a streets of rogue 2 which is more of an open mm-hmm. world version coming out i'm a big fan of the first game by the way <laughs> um <laughs> but it's uh yeah so i'm just sort of wondering how with those sort of franchises how the potential franchises first of all are they am i right in saying they are candidates and secondly um what do you see in them? Are they are they similar to the Hello Neighbors? What you saw in, in that, or is they completely different and they have their own unique qualities? What what sort of allowed you to identify them as potentially good candidates? Is it just how popular they were originally as as the initial release games? Um, kind of. Uh, I think the examples that you mentioned are prime candidates for franchises, and we are working on next installments uh, in those series. Uh, the thing about both of them is um, the amount of time that people spend with them on average per person. And this is something that we look to. Uh, so Space of Rogue, you probably can imagine how people spend hundreds, even thousands of hours within it. Mm. So that means that uh, it's becoming one of those games that you play for the full year, right? You just open it up every night, and then you take a break to play like, you know, the AAA Elden Ring, God of War, etc., cetera, for, for a week, and then come back to playing Streets of Rogue. And this is where I want to be with our franchise. I don't want to be the game that people um, take a break for. I want to be the game that people take a break from and then come back. Because that's a much more reliable model. Uh, one would say it's totally reliable. Okay, that's a terrible joke. <laughs> um, but that, that is where I want to go. It's, it's about the time that people spend in uh, our franchises. And um, it doesn't always have to be in the game. Right. Uh, for example, uh, we're now working on the Hello Neighbor cartoon, which is getting incredible reception. And then the idea that you can use things like animated series to sell your game copies and to re-engage your audience is really appealing to me as well. So we are working on several um, continuations in the series and uh, IPs that we own. And some of them have already a lot of plans for extensions. It's just that we don't like talking about things that, uh, you know, kind of like, what is going to be your favorite game of the year? Like, I don't want to say because mm. uh, we need data to verify and uh, to uh, still have this portfolio approach of what we communicate is going to be successful. Absolutely. I, I can see a lot of potential for uh, the Streets of Rogue universe extending out into other mm-hmm. media and so on. It's uh, definitely a good candidate for that with all the characters and so on. Um yeah, so another sort of strate- strategic move you've made um, in recent years has been a move towards sort of games as a service. Mm-hmm. So perhaps you could sort of like give us an idea of what you how you define that, and um, and perhaps some sort of examples of games mm-hmm. that you define that, that would fit that mold right now, and and where other ones potentially in the future. So for us, game as a service is really uh, applicable to pretty much any single game in the portfolio that we continue to work on post-release. 
the traditional definition of uh, gas or games as a service is usually for multiplayer games, usually free to play. Um, that does apply to us, but we extend that to single player games as well. So for example, a game will launch, uh, it will do well, and then um, we will either do an update for that specific game, you know, as a service to our players, or we will add on pieces of downloadable content later on, and then do a heavy discount on the main game, uh, therefore driving sales to it and awareness to the DLC, which will often result in year number two, three, four, five in the game's life cycle being the best one. So I think this is key for a lot of people to understand is um, unlike traditional belief, um, when you launch a game, you have six weeks and then it drops off. For us, it's about the longevity. And often the first year is not the best year in terms of the game's life cycle. So that's how we define game as a service. And it just means that a lot of work is being done on um, back catalog games, on games that are already out. And so the monetization there is is largely using DLCs and and like you're saying discounts on to to keep driving people mm-hmm. back to and and expanding the user base of the game is the main focus over yep. the years, yeah. And bringing those games to new platforms as well, right? Because um, mm. uh, that that it sounds easy uh, when you look at Unreal Engine or the Unity game engines, you go like, oh yeah, they support consoles. It should be easy to bring your games to consoles. No, it's not. Quite often, actually it can cost uh, the same or even more amount of money to bring the game to consoles as it is to develop it for PC. Yes, yeah, that makes sense, yeah. Um, So uh, another big part of your strategy is merger and acquisition. So um, I think, as I understand it, the motivations for this are to increase your own IP, um, for the increased margins and and all the other sort of franchise potential benefits and so on that you've you've outlined, and also uh, more recently, sort of vertical integration as well. So you've um, mm-hmm. you've expanded your publishing capacity with Versus Evil. You've also added on sort of quality assurance with uh, Red Cerberus, and then mm-hmm. I think also D Magic has expanded your sort of porting capabilities. Is it is and then you've got sort of like a few different models for this. So sometimes with your, if you're looking for an IP or just the um, develop and to expand to get the development team that developed it on board, you'd sort mm-hmm. of do the acquire hire uh, model. And then compared to in, in other cases, you've also done sort of full acquisitions and IP only ones as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So maybe you could just sort of go over this a little bit and um, and maybe outline if there's any other kind of in the vertical integration, if there's any other sort of components of the pipeline, perhaps, that you, you're looking to add. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you're absolutely right. <laughs> when when uh, you describe it like that, it's like uh, we're grabbing onto everything, right? Uh, but really, uh, it all goes into uh, the strategy of uh, building franchise. So what do we need to build franchise? We need intellectual property. We need people who can actually create that intellectual property. And we need the publishing pipeline to be able to release those games um, on time, on quality, and on budget. So to do that, um, we did start to integrate vertically. And um, the creative business in games um, is very interesting because it's a people-first business. Uh, You don't have much without the people actually working on these great projects. So um, the best way we found to align incentives is to be part of the same family. And that's actually the main reason why we went public. 
because in the private sector, it's difficult to create like truly aligned motivations, right? Uh, because you can give all of the options and uh, stock units you want when they're not, you know, liquid, when there's now no like price associated with them, it's really difficult mm -hmm. to keep people um, aligned and motivated. So after we went public, uh, we have accelerated on m and And what we're doing most of the time is the aqua hires that you had mentioned, uh, where we already work with a team. We love working with them and we want to, you know, kind of like put the ring on and um, actually integrate more deeply. And this uh, gives a lot more stability and freedom for uh, the studios that join us. Um, and it uh, creates more value for us as a whole. Uh, because um, when you're at that level, you can uh, afford much more R&D. You don't need to be pitching to different publishers. You can spend time on developing something new, unexpected, and then still have the freedom to uh, work on it. And uh, we want to empower more and more of our teams to be able to um, deliver things that are unexpected, you know? Uh, so in terms of structure, the equity hire, what that means is um, we um, essentially create a new uh, entity legally. Uh, we do all of the backend operations and everything and put the people into that entity, put the IP into that entity, and then we have no potential uh, liability from buying an actual asset, right? It's not always possible, mm -hmm. but that's the cleanest way to do it. And it has worked for us so far. And in terms of uh, the services businesses you've mentioned, indeed, bringing those in-house makes us much more independent from external factors because a lot of uh, game delays over the pandemic especially have been due to external dependencies of studios you know you you want quality assurance and you have to wait for a couple of months to get that done or uh, if you need to code optimization or porting or localization everything was backed up so like the physical supply chain was backed up the vendor supply chain was also backed mm. up and then, of course, the other aspect is you've got your own um, DevGam developer mm -hmm. conference, which is another sort of, in a way, another aspect of the of the pipeline, isn't it? Yes, it's a way for us to um, essentially position ourselves as a thought leader in the industry and um, be able to talk to many developers in different regions and also find new and interesting projects. Like some of the best and most interesting projects we have released came from uh, very in-depth brainstorms. Uh, you know, when you're at the conference, you're not at home, you want to talk to people and bounce ideas around. Some of those ideas have manifested into our biggest hits. So for us, having that strategic investment in an events business uh, has been really fruitful over the years. And is is there anywhere, is there any other sort of part of the of the stack there that, you feel would be a candidate for acquisition or um do you think would it's currently a bit of a bottleneck or have you pretty much um smoothed everything out now and you've got everything you need in-house um we're always looking at assets out there right uh, the problem with the private markets and uh you know with some companies that are at scale is there is a lag in uh valuations uh when you look at private versus public so when the public sectors uh, get a sobering on uh, bloated valuations, mm. it takes up to like a year and a half for the private markets to catch up. Um, and uh, we've just, we've always steered away from auction style M&A opportunities when you know that the company is on the roadshow and then it turns into a bid war. And uh, the like last year, uh, there was one case when 
um, we sit down, look at uh, a potential company to acquire and do valuations. And we go like, okay, you know, this can be really easily justified at, I don't know, 20, $30 million and sells for 10 times that. That's wow. when we knew like, okay, maybe there's a bubble. <laughs> maybe, yeah. Um, so I wouldn't mind just focusing a little bit on uh, the versus evil transaction because mm-hmm. that was one of the the biggest ones uh, more so much mm-hmm. the the integration so um it's increased your publishing capacity and it's given you some expertise perhaps in mm-hmm. some areas that you hadn't previously gone into before like sort of rpg and strategy games i've actually been playing um hand of merlin recently which is a mm. have been has been a good one um and i understand the banner saga is quite is one of their most famous uh series mm-hmm. they've published but Sort of generally, I was wondering. So, in terms of um, sourcing f- from going forwards, you're you're looking to move more to a from a third party to a first and second party IP process. So I'm guessing that's going to be um, approaching some of the developers they've as you've done previously with your um, with Tiny Build, mm-hmm. um, approaching some of the ones that they already have existing relationships with and stuff like that, and trying to see if if they're good candidates for. Um, if they'd be up for sort of acquire hire type transactions. Um, but also, I mean, I was wondering, are, are they still, um, as versus evil still got some sort of, because you're doing much a very, you talk about having a, a decentralized sort of model. Are they going to be still very much sourcing their own ideas or, or, or when you say you're increasing, it's increased the publishing capacity. Does that mean that you're going to give them games that you, you, you've sourced? you don't have the capacity to publish is it going to be a bit of a combination of the two what, what, how about that yeah so the, the last one uh, i've actually seen some peers try that and uh, no one wants to feel like uh, they got the second best right in any situation mm-hmm. it's kind of like handing up so it's going to be a mix of uh helping them accelerate the transition to second party because uh well two years minimum to develop any new game so that is going to take a little bit of time uh, while we optimize the efficiency because uh, what happened at Sunny Build is uh, last year was a very, very accelerated restructure in the middle of uh, relocating hundreds of people from um, things impacted by the um, Russian-Ukraine war uh, or the invasion of Ukraine. Um, and we've, we've been able to test a lot of structures that we're now applying to more parts of the business. But the key here first is for versus evil to transition to uh, working on larger scale games with own IP and then look at uh, if uh, the structure allows for managing internal studios, because you can't just um, like wake up and decide that you're going to be managing studios. It takes a lot of time and expertise because you go from a um, business where you manage transactions and contracts to managing people. So I wouldn't want to commit to that, right? Until we know that we can actually do it. It's the same with any kind of new aspect of the business or any kind of new strategic initiative. We don't want to commit to it until we test it, make sure that it works. That makes sense, yeah. Um, so I just sort of wanted to finish by changing tack completely. Um, mm-hmm. I uh, I understand you're a South Park fan. Is that is that correct? <laughs> uh, I've been watching South Park over the years, yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask you, have you got a favorite episode? Oh man, the most recent uh, seasons, my favorite episode is probably the Chat GPT one. That was just so spot on and like so incredible. And uh, really, the last season, uh, also the the one about the startups and the hot dogs, 
Uh, <laughs> if you look at all of uh, South Park, um, I'd probably say that um, uh, the Stick of Truth episode uh, was really good, uh, where they kind of like promote. So essentially, the whole Lord of the Rings uh, parody series uh, mm. that they have, and I also love the movie. Uh, the movie was was unexpectedly great. It was, yeah. <laughs> and if, <laughs> on the on the subject of Stick of Truth, have you played the games? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did absolutely. I've, I found them quite difficult, not because the gameplay was difficult itself, but because I was laughing so hard I, I couldn't mash the buttons <laughs> hard enough to get to complete it. It, it was the first um, instance of when you feel like you're actually playing the cartoon, right? Uh, because Matt and Trey, they were involved in it. Uh, all the voice acting is the same. The animation is very, very similar. I understand so they wrote I, the, the script as well, the whole st- story. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, you can, you can definitely feel it. <laughs> incredible work isn't it yeah um i think that's pretty much all the topics i uh i had mm-hmm. on my list to discuss is there anything else you think we've missed that you'd, you'd like to get out there no i think uh it's it's a very interesting time for us and uh, in the context of being a listed company uh we listed when it was like quote-unquote easy mode right uh, when all the mm-hmm. markets were up and we kind of like graduated to a uh, hardcore mode right now which is where we're at but, you know, uh, it's always dark as before dawn on the share price, so I'm very optimistic about it. Yeah, I mean, you had a pretty um, a pretty crazy year from that, yes, uh, last year from that point. With, I think it was over 100 employees you had to relocate um, due yeah. to the Ukraine war. Yeah. yeah, really incredible um, effort <laughs> sort of to, mm-hmm. to have that all. I mean, you said you had a bit of a, a, a war a game sort of strategy planned out for that war room strategy type thing all in place beforehand and it was just then suddenly you didn't think perhaps you were gonna have to put it to go with it and but you had to and yeah it's um yeah, really impressive but so anyway um is there i just sort of wanted to give you a chance of hand off um is there anywhere people should look to to find you i know you're on twitter do you want to give like your twitter handle and any other resources uh you want people to go have a look at uh, yeah, just uh, my my last name is Nietzsche Porchuk, and that's also my Twitter handle. So good luck spelling that. Uh, <laughs> just go to tinybuild.com or uh, follow a Twitter uh, on Twitter at tinybuild, and you will find my profile. Uh, yeah, on the tinybuild.com about page, or if you search Alex Tinybuild, you'll find me. Brilliant. Well, thanks a lot for your time, Alex. Um, I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, James. Thank you. Bye.